2: Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com.
1: Welcome back to Overnight America. Big thanks to Paul Barry III, who joined us at the end of last hour. You can go find that on the podcast Joining us now is a public policy analyst, a professor of finance at Stockton University, Dr. Michael Busler. Thanks for coming back on to Overnight America.
3: Well, thanks for having me, uh, Ryan. As you know, it's my pleasure to be here.
1: You're always a great guest. And I got to say, uh, during the break, I um, asked my producer, do we have the guest on the line? And he said, the bus is loaded. I was like That's a pretty good way to introduce Dr. Michael Bussler. So um, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about a few different things, one of which yeah. is a survey that came out just recently. And Mm -hmm. they ask this pretty much every election. Are you better off today than you were four years ago? It's the common question. And for a lot of ways, it's like an economic barometer. And as it turns out, a lot of people, the majority of people say they are better off than they were four years ago. So I wanted to get your take on where you think the economy is compared to where it was four years ago. How do you think the American people are when it comes to the economy and the way it was four years ago, just based on what you saw from the survey?
3: Yeah, so uh, just a little bit about that survey. It was first Ronald Reagan in 1980 that, uh, when he was running against Jimmy Carter, asked the American public, are you better off today than you were four years ago? And most said no, and he was elected. Since then, um, every sitting president um, has seen this uh, survey done, and most of them, uh, like for Clinton and uh, Obama and Bush, they were in the mid-40s. So 56% is astounding, uh, especially when you consider uh, what the economy is has gone through and is, is coming out of. Um, so uh, it just says that people realize, even with the bad conditions today, that really they were way better off under Trump than Obama. So where mm-hmm. exactly are we today? Uh, so a little bit of the big picture. The economy started off this year doing exceptionally well. January and February looked great. In March, we had shut down the economy completely, and uh, that dragged the whole first quarter down. April, the economy was shut down completely. That dragged down tremendously the second quarter. However, um, the federal government, uh, Trump and Congress, passed a massive stimulus package, which was both a good idea and a bad idea. On the good idea, it put uh, money into the hands of the unemployed Uh, money into the hands, really, of every American and gave some extra money to business. So the economy rebounded very sharply, and we were wondering whether a recovery would be a V-shape, bounce back quickly, or more of a U-shape, sort of drag at the bottom for a while before it came back. turns out it's a sharp V, um, and we've had had four months of tremendous growth, uh, record-setting growth. Now, people say, well, how do you know that? They don't publish monthly growth figures. And that's true. They don't. So um, how did I judge that? Well, I think you can judge how the economy is growing by how many uh, people went to work, how many new jobs were created. A little bit of a historical perspective. In a good economy, you create maybe two or 300,000 jobs in a month. Um, The best we ever did was 1.6 million uh, back during the Reagan administration. In the month of May, we added 2.8 million jobs, nearly doubling the Previous record. The economy must be growing rapidly. In June, we added 4.6 million jobs. Again, the economy must be grow- growing very rapidly. Slowed down a little bit in uh, April, 1.8 million, still a great number. Um, I mean, in uh, July, uh, 1.8 million. In August, 1.4 million. Now it started to slow a little bit more in. Uh, September. But I think that the second, the third quarter this year and the growth figure will be out, I believe, next week um, is going to show GDP. I I figure about 22 percent growth, which would be a record. The Atlanta Federal Reserve is projecting it could be as high as 30 percent. So either way, we're coming back uh, very, very strong. Um, It is starting to slow a little bit in September, and that can be fixed by one of two ways. One, we need a little more stimulus which again is both a good idea and a bad idea but if we get the stimulus that'll um, keep the v shaped recovery with a a steep slope I'm not so sure that's going to happen since everybody seems to be fairly far apart Um, the House and the Senate at least the president is trying to the best he can to make a deal but I'm not so sure anything's going to happen maybe it will the other way to and I think makes a little more sense is there's about eight or ten states that are simply not reopening and are staying severely shut down. New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, uh, Illinois, Michigan, California, um, Washington, Oregon. Those states, the governors, uh, who coincidentally all happen to be Democrats, but the governors are very slow to reopen those uh, states. Um, even though I understand the number of cases is going up and certainly the health is a concern. um, But the problem is if we stay shut down, if those states stay shut down much longer, you're going to have some long-term negative impacts on the economy and some very negative impacts on people's health. I mean, already Mm. uh, with so high unemployment, you're seeing uh, anxiety, depression, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, domestic violence, eventually that's going to lead to Suicide. So if those states can, can get open and do it safely and smartly, and we understand, you know, we're trying to balance everything here, um, but get those states up and running and uh, that'll keep the economy going. President Trump thinks next year could be one of the best years we've had ever. Um, he may be right, because um, all the state is really set for that. Um, regulations, uh, counterproductive regulations have been pretty much eliminated. Uh, tax rates have been lowered to give people an incentive to work and business an incentive to um, invest. Um, and there's a lot of pent up demand from everybody being shut down all this time. Um, so, of course, we have an election coming up, and depending on who wins, that's going to have an impact on economics. But uh, under the current policies, I think we're recovering very uh, strongly. We lost 22 million jobs. And yet in four months, we added about half of them back already. Again, that's a a remarkably robust recovery
1: uh, that we hope continues and we have strong growth next year. Yeah, let me tell you some of my fears. And uh, joining us here is Dr. Michael Bussler. He's a professor of finance at Stockton University, public policy analyst. And we start to learn about some of the different ways that taxes could change under Joe Biden. Let's say he wins the office and the, you, look, you look at his tax plan. And you look at some of those states you mentioned, the ones that haven't fully opened the economy yet, the, the New Yorks, the New Jerseys, uh, California, places like that. And we're looking at the high-income earners Upwards of what sixty plus percent of their tax uh, of their income would go towards uh, taxes, and a lot of um, high end people and ones that have made something of themselves or whatever it is are very concerned. They're like, you got to be kissed Sixty percent. So let me point this out real quick. There's that old adage that you know I've I've never had a poor person offer me a job. What happens in those states, the ones that haven't opened back up, and then new tax policy goes in under Joe Biden, where they take the top tax earner or the top earners, tax them sixty percent. Um, what's going to happen to the job opportunities when you take that and then factor in the high taxes? How, what would that mean for their economic recovery?
3: Uh, it would be very bad. So uh, people say, how do you come up with 60%? Well, um, what you're saying is they're likely to raise the top rate uh, tax rate from the 36% it is now probably somewhere in the mid-40s in order to pay for everything, um, President, uh, uh, candidate uh, Biden wants to do. Uh, and then the state of New U- uh, California uh, already has a 13% income tax. That's going to have to go up, too. So you start adding that. And remember, you pay Social Security tax on uh, some of your income uh, and Medicare tax on some of your income. And, um, you know, there are hidden taxes you pay, too. You pay uh, taxes on uh, sales taxes when you buy things, property taxes uh, on where you live. So you start adding all that up and pretty soon you're paying over 60 percent uh at least the higher income earners in in taxes so what's going to happen they're going to say boy i love living in california but texas is fairly similar climate and i'm going to save a bundle by moving there so you Mm -hmm. see a lot of people florida is the same way you see a lot of people leaving california leaving new york state moving to some of these states uh even new jersey is going through it they just raised the top bracket here from 9% up to 11% people are starting to leave leave the state you don't necessarily bring in more revenue by raising the tax rate if you raise the rate and people leave and you have a lower base the higher rate on a lower base probably gives you less money than if you had a lower rate and kept every everybody there uh so mm-hmm. what's going to happen is people will be leaving the the state um, California, New York City, too, is really in a disastrous situation. It really looks like a ghost town. And um, there are large numbers of restaurants that have closed, many of them stayed permanently. Um, so how they're going to rebound from this, I'm not sure. They're going to look to the federal government, uh, who also doesn't have any money. Um, as I mentioned, those stimulus packages were a good idea and a bad idea. The bad idea part is the deficit for last year, fiscal 2020, which ended the end of September, was $3.1 trillion. That's more than double the worst deficit we, we ever had. adds to the public debt, raises the public debt to $26 trillion. Annual GDP is only around 2021, so this far exceeds annual GDP. When that happens, most economists are uh, w- worried um, about that so these states um they're going to have a problem they're going to look to the federal government if trump's reelected, uh he's going to say look the federal government doesn't have much money either um we really can't start uh, paying all this now uh biden wins he's likely to be a little more sympathetic uh to these uh states but but still the federal government's not going to be able to bail all these people out They've got to get their economies going again. Uh, Get get them strong, get everybody working, get the revenue being generated, and then you can tackle all these other things. But if you keep the economy shut down, every day it's shut down is another day you're losing potentially millions of dollars and you just can't keep doing this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other part of the the taxing of the high income earners and the cutoff point four hundred thousand would be the cutoff point is where they're looking at the hypotheticals based on the plans of Joe Biden. But think of it this way: um, if they leave the state, so do the jobs. So they're taking their business, packing up, and going. And a lot of people in California have been doing that right now because they're just tired of the way it's being run. So think about that with all of the the different states that are being run the way they are, and consider if we were to try to put into place something more on a federal level, a lot of different income states would uh, a lot of uh, income taxes would go out, and it's going to scare a lot of different people in fact a lot of jobs could be in jeopardy when we're trying to recover but um, one other thing i wanted to ask you right before we go and hypothetically speaking if biden wins or trump wins what do you think would happen immediately to the economy because some people say that if donald trump wins you could see a big boost in the stock market some people say if biden wins immediately you'd see a big drop in the stock markets do you see a lot of shifting going on based on who wins the election immediately in november
3: uh, I'm not sure immediately. Uh, although there will be some reaction fairly quickly, the larger reaction will come next year when some of the policies are implemented. Look, if you, uh, Biden wants to raise the corporate income tax from 21 to 28 percent, so, so that's you're raising by one third the amount of taxes corporations have to pay. What that means is there's less for them to retain and less capital to finance. Uh, growth. And we have a capital-intensive economy, so you need capital. You're raising taxes on the the wealthy, says only people over 400,000. Problem is that's only about one and a half percent of the population. So you're going to have to raise taxes on more people um, in order to uh, be able to raise the revenue that you need uh, for all of the uh, spending that you're incurring. So I think if um, Biden wins, corporations are going to say, hey, my profits are going to be Uh, going down. They're probably going to start regulating things. Um, I don't know if it'll be a big drop right off the bat, although it is possible. I think more you would see a drop and kind of a stagnant um, stock market and stagnant business activity until they figure out exactly what he's going to get through. On the other hand, if President Trump wins, and in spite of what the polls say, I'm very confident that President Trump is going to pull pull this out. Um, if he does win um, and his policies are continued, the business community knows our corporate tax rate will stay low. They know the personal tax rate will, will stay low. They know that President Trump will probably move to reduce the capital gains tax rate also. And the last time that was done significantly, by the way, was under the Clinton administration when he lowered it from 28 percent to 20 percent in 1996. The next four and a half years we had, uh, the next four years, rather, we had 4.5% annual growth. 4.5% annual growth. Um, They raised more tax revenue, were able to not only balance the budget, but run a surplus uh, in the budget. Um, And it looked like things were doing exceptionally well because that capital gains tax was reduced. Well, President Trump is talking about dropping that back to 15%. That, too, will create more capital. We have a capital-intensive economy. Creating more capital will lead to more growth. If Trump wins, I think you're going to see some very positive effects on the economy and on the stock market.
1: Yeah, and if those that are upset and Joe Biden, certainly and some of the different people running along his side, are very upset with the idea of dropping it and the way it was dropped during his tax cuts and, you know, reversing some of these tax cuts. I would say very simple indicator. Look at the unemployment and what happened afterwards. We we're seeing record unemployment before this COVID hit. So it, there are some very strong signs that, yes, that absolutely worked, because if the goal is to get people working, it worked. So, uh, Dr. Michael mm-hmm. Busler, if people wanted to find you online, some of the work you're doing, where can they look you up?
3: Sure. So two easy places. Uh, my Twitter account is at M. Bustler at M. Bustler. I tweet out every one of my columns. I'd be happy if you followed me. You have a Facebook page. Search for funding democracy, funding democracy. And you'll see my page there. It's called funding democracy, the economics of freedom. Every one of my columns is there. And I, too, would be uh,
1: happy to see you follow me there. Dr. Michael Busler, it's uh, great to get you on. You're such a great guest, and you're so good at Thank explaining you. these things. Thanks for coming on to Overnight America. Thank you. My pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. Funding Democracy on social media. Look him up. Uh, Dr. Michael Busler joins us on the Quiver River Electric guest line. It's Overnight America KMOX.
2: St. Louis's weather station, KMOX.
1: Welcome back to Overnight America. So... Good segment with Dr. Michael Bussler. We've had him on a few different times, and I'm always uh, happy when he says, yes, I'll come back on your show. And I like how producer Mike prefaced it right during the news. We were listening, and I sent him a quick message and asked him, do we have the guest on the line? And he said, the bus is loaded. That's the way to do it. We're going to post that online, too, with some of the things we talked about last hour in about five or six minutes from now. We're actually going to be talking to Robert M. Hardaway. He's the author of Saving the Electoral College, Why the National Popular Vote Would Undermine Democracy. I only had a chance to bring this up just briefly last hour, and I think it's worth bringing it again because it's one of the top stories at KMOX.com. And we're getting some national coverage with it, too. In the 1st Congressional District, Cori Bush is running as the uh, Democratic candidate. And she puts out a tweet that says, if you're having a bad day, just think of all the social services we're going to fund after we defund the Pentagon. (laughs) All right. So we're part of this culture where everything, we got to defund the military. We got to defund the police. We got to defund. We got to defund. And I thought, Governor Parsons said it best, and I'm going to read a quote from Governor Parsons' people. Uh, he said it's a conversation on our sister station, '97 -1. He said, "When you start talking about defunding police and defunding the military, it's a dangerous road to go down the economy that Fort Leonard Wood, that um, well, think about this even here in Missouri, the NGA site. We're going to be looking at them building and think of all the money that's being invested in St. Louis as part of that National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And they're trying to revitalize that entire area. And he points out, we're talking $30 billion worth of income to the state, 180,000 jobs. So then you have a candidate... Cory Bush that says, defund the Pentagon. Get rid of that. Alright, seriously, I want you to go to those families that'll be making uh, you know, putting food on the table and then putting a roof over the head because they got a good paying job over at the NGA site and say, oh no, we should defund that because we don't like it. You know, give me a break. So, what a, uh, what a dumb thing to try to advocate for and something that would seriously hurt not only our state but our direct region here in St. Louis. Like, we have the ability to turn away good companies good businesses that want to come in and invest in this community like we have that sort of luxury right now to do something like that and discourage it and you know what a what a strange thing to say when it's right there in in your backyard All right. So coming up next, I want to bring in our guest, Robert M. Hardaway, author of Saving the Electoral College, Why the National Popular Vote Would Undermine Democracy. Since it is an election year, a lot of times you find, oh, why do we even need the Electoral College? Why why do we even use it? Oh, boy. Okay. well, we're going to talk to someone who has been an advocate for it in trying to save things. And I had conversations with him in the past.
2: News Radio 1120, KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals.
1: Overnight America is live with you tonight up until midnight. Replay hours afterwards, and then you can find the podcast in the KMOX.com podcast section or KMOX.com slash ONA. Joining us now, a author saving the Electoral College, why the national popular vote would undermine democracy. Robert M. Hardaway, thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. Thank you for having me. We uh, really enjoyed the conversation last time you were on, so I'm glad that we get some time to bring you back on, mostly because we're getting close to that November election date, and sometimes this is a point of discussion, mostly because people always wonder, do we need the Electoral College? And uh, certainly on the night of the election, let's say hypothetically, we see what happened in 2016 where Donald Trump takes more states, wins the Electoral College, but somehow Joe Biden wins the popular vote or something like that. And then, of course, there's the big uproar. Why do we need the Electoral College? See, you stole it, this and that. So I I think it's good for you to come on and and make the case and talk about why we have the Electoral College and why it works.
4: Well, for one thing, right off the bat, um, the notion that there is a popular vote uh is is actually misconceived and many people still believe that when they go into the voting booth they're actually voting for a presidential candidate of course they're not they're voting as they do in england you vote for in england you vote for a member of parliament who then goes to parliament and then votes for the leader it works the same way here uh, you vote for a, an elector who goes to the Electoral College to elect the president. But there's no popular votes for a individual candidate. People are still under that misconception. So they need to take a close look at their ballot. There's no popular vote for this national popular vote interstate compact to base their popular vote allocation on. Mm-hmm.
1: You're right. And part of this, too... There's a lot of hypotheticals of what could happen between now and then, and some states have decided to take it on their own when it comes to the faceless electors, the ones that decide to flip it, even if their state and the people on the state voted a certain way for a certain candidate. So you start to see even elected officials that try to push back on the system that's in place right now. The Electoral College and the reason it was put together, I'm hoping you can give a little bit of history, uh, back the, the background of why it was set up the way it was set up.
4: Well, for one thing, we wouldn't have the United States of America today if the Grand Compromise hadn't been entered into by our founding fathers at the Constitutional Convention. At the time of the Constitutional Convention, very few people thought that these uh colonies could ever get together and form one united country it was almost inconceivable and uh, even george washington said I, I i'll come to this thing but reluctantly because i don't think there's any chance because the small states are forming their own uh, uh, country uh, the big states are forming their own country the south is forming their own country and it was only at the last minute really uh, that the grand compromise was achieved Because the small states said, we're not going to enter a union unless we have, uh, each state has equal suffrage, equal uh, representation uh, in the Congress. And the large states said, no way. It has to be one person, one vote. It has to be based purely on population. And it was only at the last minute that the Grand Compromise was achieved, which brought them all together in one in one country. And the elements of that Grand Compromise were, first, that there'd be an upper house in which it would be based on one state, one vote, and then the lower house, based purely on population, and that in the election of a president, the election of the president, the weight that each state gets, would be based on uh, the two electoral votes, in part, The two electoral votes that each state is allocated based on their equal representation in the Senate. And that cannot be abrogated unless every state agrees. It's the only provision in the entire Constitution, which cannot be amended by constitutional amendment. If you look at the last sentence of Article 5, you cannot take away every state's equal. Uh, representation in the Senate, upon which each state's uh, representation and weight in the in the Electoral College and presidential elections is based. So it's really political theater to talk about abolishing the Electoral College, because you can't do it unless every state uh, agrees, and that's simply not going to happen. Wyoming is not going to give up uh, their weight uh, in the Electoral College. Uh, it's it's just not going to happen. But it sounds good. It's it's good political theater uh it's been going on for about 200 years every 10 years or so one party or the other uh wants to quote abolish the electoral college back in 1960 it was republicans who wanted to get rid of it because uh they thought that it favored uh democrats somehow and indeed in 1960 according to the new york times and the congressional quarterly it was kennedy uh, who won the who won the electoral vote uh, but nixon that won the popular vote so this happens all the time. Uh, the, 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 the members of the Constitutional Convention, the Founding Fathers, knew it would happen, and that's why they put in this one provision in Article 5 that says you can't eliminate equal suffrage in the Senate upon which the Electoral College is based unless every state agrees.
1: Mm-hmm. What you see online, different graphics, memes, things like that, they love to take a picture of the United States, broken down into different counties and districts. And then they like to make them blue and red. And they would say, do you really want these small sections of blue representing the rest of this country? So you look at the high volumes of population in places like California and New York and Chicago places that vote predominantly blue. And they look at that and they say, these type of cities should be able to dictate how the rest of the country governs themselves. So forget about what the, the, the individual state's rights or the way that each state would, uh, be able to govern in a way that would be best representing the people that are inside of it. So let, let's just say, hypothetically, the Electoral College went away. What would be the danger for, like, say, the Midwest here if we were to just go based on the whims of these large pockets of populations on the coasts?
4: Well, it's interesting. The last time um, there, well, there's been several serious attempts to abolish the U.S. Senate as, as, and the Electoral College, upon, which is based on the the equal suffrage in the Senate. But it was actually John F. Kennedy in his famous speech in 1956 in the Senate who anticipated uh, this. He said, "If you, if we do the pop, so-called popular vote system, which is the system in Russia, by the way, people love a lot of people love Russia, and they think <laughs> it'd be great to have a so-called popular vote election." And he says, "If we did." That it would increase the likelihood of a president being elected by a minority of the people. I'll explain that in a minute. It would break down the federal system under which the states entered the union, which provides a system of checks and balances that ensures that no area and I underscore area or group shall obtain too much power. So he he he, he understood this you can't have a country as large as the United States uh, govern sustainably. Um, unless you have representation from all over the from all over the country, and he quoted Madison, this government is not completely consolidated under our constitution, nor is it entirely federal, but who are the parties to it? the people not at, not as the people comprising one great massive body, but the people comprising thirteen sovereignties. So he understood it. And if we did have a so-called Russian system, uh, if you look at past elections, you can see what would have happened. In, 19, in 1960, we still wouldn't know who the president was, uh, because if we'd had an NPVIC back then who said we're going to count the popular votes uh, and, instead, um, no one could agree on how you count them. How do you count popular votes cast, for, exa- for example, um, electors? Who are unpledged to any particular candidate there's no way to count the popular vote and that's why we have the system which is the envy of the world Uh, we have a system very similar to the electoral college in england people say electoral college in england i thought they had a parliament yes they call their electoral college a parliament But it works exactly the same way. You elect members of parliament who then go to the parliament and then they vote for the leader. The only difference between our Electoral College and the parliament in England is that the founding fathers wanted wanted three separate branches of government, three branches of government that would be checks and balances on each other. And in England, you have the legislature electing the president. So you really only have two branches of government: the 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 their parliament, which does two functions, elects elects their leader and legislation. So you 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 combine the two the two uh, parts of the government. So the the founding fathers wanted to separate that. That's why we have an electoral college, and that's why we have been so successful, those with st- with stable governments, uh, for the last 200 years. Hmm. We're kind of the end of holding... the world, and we huh. take it for granted. Do you
1: mind holding on after the break? I have some more questions for you on this, and I I think that uh, this could be part of a bigger trend that we see with some of the the, the far progressive style candidates that get into office and what you hear them say is you know forget about the electoral college they want to rip up the constitution and it's it's so dangerous because it's the same mindset and i wanted to ask you about that so robert m hardaway will continue our conversation with him he's the author of saving the electoral college why the national popular vote would undermine democracy you can find his book online
2: now it's overnight america kmox This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring. The flooring experts. MichaelsFlooringOutlet.com on KMOX. And Overnight America
1: continues. I got to say, I'm a fan of Robert Hardaway and the way he explains this in his book, Saving the Electoral College, Why the National Popular Vote Would Undermine Democracy. I think it is an important system that we have and we should uphold. I do have some more questions for you. and, And thanks for sticking around, Robert. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's say we look at some of the more progressive candidates, the ones that would advocate not only abolishing things like, you know, um, the the Electoral College, but then they go even further and they say, we need to rip up the Constitution and start from scratch. Some of the candidates even go as far as saying that we don't even need uh, a Constitution. In fact, we don't even need anything. We can just do whatever we want, you know, type of mindset. So let's just say, hypothetically, we were starting from scratch. And I'm looking at this as a way to be more of a thought exercise. So Let's say you were one of the founding fathers or even today, even if we're just founding the country today in 2020. Um, how would you pitch to people why we need the Electoral College opposed to some of these other systems that people want to see? And what would you say if we were starting from scratch? This is the reason why we should do the Electoral College.
4: Well, there's a reason why the, why the founding fathers uh, didn't wanted Electoral College. You um, look at other countries that have, that don't have one. For example, in Russia, they have this so-called popular vote system, and you get three or four parties. Um, the, the French have adopted the French, the uh, Russian system, by the way. And if you look at what happened in two seventeen, it was a total tragedy. Um, the two major parties got nudged out by a couple of percentage points. Everyone said, "Well, they're the two major parties." But they got nudged out by two percent each, and so you had one candidate, Macron, that got twenty-one percent. You had a you had a, a extremist group uh, that got twenty-two percent. So then there was a so-called runoff, and a runoff you get the illusion that that you're going to get somebody who's who's supported by fifty percent, but in fact in in France uh, the eventual winner, Macron, was opposed by two-thirds of the electorate, and so they ended up uh, electing somebody who was only who only had twenty-three uh, percent support. And that's uh, there was over a million voters that expressed their outrage at that undemocratic system. Over a million voters cast blank ballots, basically saying this Russian system is an outrage to democracy. And it was. And that's not something that, that we want and now. And it's certainly not what the founding fathers had envisioned back then. We wouldn't have the United States of America at all. Uh, if we had not entered into this compromise uh, based on equal suffrage in the Senate and upon which the Electoral College is based. So it, these the... W- The the Founding Fathers looked ahead, and they saw the demagogues within the future trying to dismantle the whole federal system. And that's why they put in this sort of poison pill that says you can't abrogate uh, the equal suffrage in the Senate unless every state agrees, because that is the basis for presidential elections in the Constitution. You can't eliminate one without the other. And that's why some democratic uh, demagogues today Actually advocate because they understand you have to eliminate the Senate first and then the Electoral College would would, would fall because that's part of the Grand Compromise.
1: Wow. And, and that's right. And that's what you see. They they want to see a fall of all of those um, the systems in place, well, they say even that, ripping yeah. the Constitution <laughs>
4: They say the Senate is a violation of the one person, one vote principle. And, and in a way, they're correct in this sense that uh, voters in Wyoming can elect two senators and, uh, and California only gets uh, two as well. And they say, well, this is a violation. No, that is federalism, because we wouldn't have the United States of America if we didn't have a federal system. If we had not had this Grand Compromise that gave every state equal, equal suffrage in at least one of the branches of the United States, there wouldn't be a United States. We'd be like uh, South America, and we were headed that way. Uh, the Grand Compromise was only approved in the Constitutional Convention by one single vote. If we hadn't done that, we would have gone the way of South America. There would be, you know, no United States of America because the Founding Fathers recognized, as John F. Kennedy did in in 1956 when he made the point, you can't rule a country, govern a country with the the geographic extent of the United States, uh, uh, just by having a small group or population center, for example, on the coasts, rule the whole hinterland of the country. It's not sustainable. It cannot hold together. We're very lucky we have it, that the founding fathers had that vision.
1: You know, I know that a lot of people on uh, coming up in just a couple of Tuesdays from now, it's hard to believe that the general election is on November 3rd less than two weeks away at this point, we're going to have the last presidential debate tomorrow. And then it's all, uh, all in and everyone making their final pushes. So on that night, November 3rd, when you, people start to make the argument that, Oh, look at this. Uh, We need to get rid of this. This is an outdated system. And they're all complaining about how we vote. And we have to go into, we have to go into a polling place and some States do it different than others. And, you know, everyone's just kind of like uh, trying to find everything to complain about based on every system that's in place already. so, Let's say someone uh, is encountered by this with maybe someone they know or on social media, things like that, and people start complaining about it. What would be the easiest down-to-earth way for someone to explain the Electoral College and why it's a good thing? Because I've asked it a couple of different ways, historically speaking, and I know that, at least for my sake, you got to dumb it down sometimes because I need a a way to dumb it down. And so how would you explain it to a uh, 16-year-old in order to have them be on board?
4: I'd explain it the same way I would explain to a 16-year-old in England who says, I don't understand Parliament. We elect members of Parliament, and they go to the Parliament and they elect the leader. I don't understand that. And I had, when I went to England some year, uh, several years ago, and they said, don't send those, uh, those demagogues that you get over the United States over here. They want to dismantle our whole Parliament because their electoral college works in exactly the same way. Our our system is very, very simple. Each state can allocate its electoral votes as it wishes. And since 1876, every state in the union has said, we're going to let the people of the state vote for the electors, the electors who then go to the electoral college and vote for the president. And once every hundred years or so, it doesn't jive with a a supposed hypothetical Russian-style popular vote. Uh, And that happens in parliamentary democracies, too. That doesn't mean it's not legitimate. And they say, don't send those people over here that would want to dismantle uh, our parliament, which has been uh, evolving for the last 1,000 years. You've got your own little separate parliament for the executive, electing the executive, so that you have three separate branches of government with checks and balances. That's why we've sustained our government for so long and been the envy of the world.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to point out it's good to know that we are represented locally as opposed to nationally, because if that was the case, Missouri would never get any love. And how many other states out there? Uh, And that's important. So, uh, by the way, people wanted to find your work, your book and find
4: you online. Where can they go? Well, you can go to Amazon. It's uh, saving the Electoral College, um, how the national popular vote would undermine democracy. And I've explained that it would elect somebody with a very small percentage of the vote. Uh, John F. Kennedy understood that. And he said uh, it would be horrible if you try. But in a way, I tried to get my uh, publishers to change the um, change the name because I say we don't need to save the Electoral College. I think it's perfectly safe under the last sentence of Article 5, which says that you can't take away equal suffrage in the Senate. Uh, upon which every state's weight and the electoral college is based unless every state agrees. But it makes for good political theater. And uh, this, is the, this is the first time in a long time that people have actually been interested, but they've forgotten what they learned in fourth grade civics, that when you yeah. go into the voting booth, you're voting for electors. You're not voting for a candidate. There is no popular vote to base, your, uh, to, to base this national popular vote interstate compact on. It simply yeah. doesn't exist. If you ask them, how would you count popular votes for unpledged electors? They just throw up their hands and they say, well, we would disenfranchise all those millions of voters. That yeah. happened in 1960 uh, in Alabama. They voted for unpledged electors. And uh, today, if you ask the MPBIC advocates that are basically financed by some multimillionaires on the coast mm-hmm. who want to, you know, force us into the Russian election system, which has been so catastrophic all around the world oh, where yeah. it's been tried.
1: Yeah. Robert M. Hardaway, I got to say, thank you for coming on before the election. I'm glad we had a chance to do this and check out his book, Saving the Electoral College by the National Popular Vote Would Undermine Democracy. He joins us on the Quiver River Electric Gets Line on Overnight America KMOX.